Released in 1981, Brian De Palma's political thriller Blowout has John Travolta playing Jack Terry, a sound recordist working at the very low end of the film industry. So Low End, the schlock movie production company Jack works for, aren't based on any Hollywood studio backlot, but rather on the second floor of a multi-purpose Philadelphia office block. When Jack's boss sends him out to capture fresh atmospheric night sounds, he locates himself on a remote bridge where he records this. And then he hears this. David, look, there's someone on the bridge. Oh, let's not worry about that. He's staring right at us. Who cares? I care. Betsy. I don't want to stay here anymore. Let's go. Yeah. What is he doing? It marks the film's second sequence, which, initially at least, seems to echo Francis Ford Coppola's 1974 Palme d'Or winner, The Conversation. Look, you see him? The man with the hearing aid, like Charles. Where? Right there with the shopping bag. He's been following us all around us, following us close. But really, what De Palma was doing was presenting it as a variation on the opening sequence to his own film. Working from his own script, which he had originally called Personal Effects, De Palma chose to parody the slasher film genre. The screenplay starts, College Campus, Night, POV of Maniac. Sound of deep, heavy, asthmatic breathing. The maniac moves past some trees across a lawn. Sound of footsteps on grass. Sound of wind through trees. He comes towards a lit dormitory. He stops before a ground floor and peers in. Clearly then, the film's plot will heavily exploit the phenomenon of sound. Which is perhaps why, for the fifth time in six films, De Palma engaged with sound editor Dan Zabel. They had previously collaborated on Phantom of the Paradise, Obsession, Carrie, The Fury and Dress to Kill, and would do so on two more occasions, Wise Guys and The Untouchables. Here, with Zabel's pushing the levels of the heavy breathing to clearly absurd levels, we can hear the maniac's impulse as purely homicidal. In the second sequence, Jack's motivation is solely professional, and yet both involve voyeurism or, to be more accurate, in Jack's case, eavesdropping, which is precisely how Coppola's A Conversation had operated. Eavesdropping has an interesting history. Although the behaviour obviously predates the 16th century, it wasn't until the Elizabethan era that the term was actually coined. That was when Britain was experiencing its first concerted stirrings of urban development. Houses were being built in very close proximity to one another, and the law decreed that there had to be a sufficient distance between them so that the rain could run off your roof, or the eaves drip, without falling on your neighbour's property. Given some people's proclivity to know what other people were saying in the privacy of their own homes, an eavesdropper was initially someone who would stand within the eaves drip in order to listen to the conversations going on inside the house. The French equivalent of eavesdrop, écouter aux portes, means to listen at doors. In Sweden, they use a single word, but it carries a very legal application. Kuvlisnar 
is a listen thief, while the Polish equivalent carries even more moral weight. Podluxivania means violation of privacy. But to my mind, it is in Spain that we find the most accurate and revelatory definition. Escuchar sin ser visto means to listen without being seen. Now, let us adjust that slightly and apply it to cinema. To listen without seeing. All too often we are told that cinema is a visual medium. It is not and ceased to be so on October the 6th, 1927, when Alan Crossland's The Jazz Singer was released into theatres. From that moment on, cinema became a visual and sonic medium. And while the emphasis is pronouncedly on what we see, it was George Lucas who explained that sound is half the picture. Genius as Lucas is, he was only half right. Sound is more than half the picture. Our eyes only allow us to see about 120 degrees left and right in front of us, with our vertical vision about 130 degrees. But our ears have far greater latitude, allowing us to also hear what is behind us. And so sensitive is our hearing, we can quickly detect the unseen source from which that sound is emanating. For the majority of filmmakers in the earliest days of the sound era, recording the script's dialogue was their main sonic concern. But gradually, other filmmakers began to explore the expressive and impressionistic nature of sound. So much so, filmmakers now use it to show us things that are not there. The sound paints a picture of what the film does not show which means we can see one thing and hear another. Which also means I can play you these sounds and you can see what I am not showing. Jesus Christ. This is what Jack hears when he is out recording. And because he was listening, without seeing. For much of the rest of the film, he will search for what those sounds look like. He does this because as the car suffered a blowout on its front tyre, skidded off the road, careened through a barrier, hurtled down a ravine and crashed into the river, Jack drops his equipment and dives into the waters to save the passengers inside. He manages to save one, a woman played by Nancy Allen, while the other, a man, briefly played by John Hofmeister, drowns as the car sinks. Back at the hospital, Jack learns that the woman's name is Sally, and the man was none other than Governor George McRyan, who had just announced his run for president. Soon, the hospital is swarming with security men, not so much asking questions, as much as asking Jack to change his account of the events. You pulled the girl out of that car? Yes. Well, I would like for you to forget about her, forget you ever saw her. Wait a minute. Who, who are you? My name is Lawrence Henry. I work for Governor McGrine. Uh, he was also a friend. He was my friend. Well, look, I, I'm I'm very sorry about the governor, and I, I I obviously would have loved to have saved his life too, but uh, I mean, I was there, and she was there. Yeah, well, we know what happened, but the governor is dead now, and. We don't want to embarrass his family. Overall, De Palma's conceit is a successful one, 
with Jack Search not only uncovering a grand political conspiracy, but also revealing to the audience the very mechanics of filmmaking itself. While garishly plotted, De Palma structures his story around several bravura sequences, several of which unavoidably recall moments in the conversation. To mark the release of Coppola's film in April 1974, De Palma conducted an interview with him for Filmmaker's Newsletter. Very quickly, Coppola declared Michelangelo Antonioni's blow-up was one of the inspirations for his film. But only insofar as Antonioni's approach allowed for a single event to be visually re-examined. Coppola's treatment was different because it allowed for a single event to be repeatedly examined from a sonic standpoint. Over the course of their interview, both Coppola and De Palma profess a fascination with what sound has to offer cinema, not just in terms of recording, but in terms of narrative construction. And reading the exchanges, you can almost hear the moment De Palma's imagination kick-starts the idea for his own film. Here is De Palma some 41 years later, talking with Noah Baumbach about the other inspirations for Blowout. Of course, there's the Kennedy assassination, all the pictures... And then the idea of, well, if you put all those pictures together and then you sunk them up, which is something if you've edited films, you're very familiar with syncing things up with claps and sounds. So that I thought, well, that whole idea where you could show something particularly filmic, you know, like blow up, you're blowing up a picture. The conversation, you're trying to weed through all the ambient sounds to figure out what the conversation is. This was something particularly cinematic where, you know, you actually see how you sync something up, which is the clue to the mystery. It's just the deadly clue of the blowout. So we have Coppola's The Conversation, the assassination of John F. Kennedy, footage of which was captured on 8mm by Abraham Zabrudder. And then the scandalous tragedy at Chabaquiddick, where Ted Kennedy lost control of his car and through his negligence, his passenger, Mary Jo Kopechny, was drowned. But as far as blow-up is concerned, Antonioni seems to have taken a very small moment from Alfred Hitchcock's rear window, in which Jimmy Stewart's L.B. Jeffries compares two photographs of a flowerbed to support his claim that a murder has taken place. Now you take a look. Tell me what you see. Now, now take it down. Now look again. Now take it down. You see? It's just a picture of the backyard, uh, that's all. One important change, one important change. Those flowers in Thorwald's pet flower bed. You mean where the dog was sniffing around? Uh, where the dog was digging. Now look at those flowers. Look, right, th those two yellow zinnias in this end aren't as tall as they were. Now since when do flowers grow shorter in two weeks? While another Hitchcock film, Psycho, is referenced in Blowout's opening sequence, the presence of yet another Hitchcock film is felt throughout the second half. Vertigo. There, the plot moves forward by tragically echoing what has already happened, where Jimmy Stewart's Scotty Ferguson unwittingly ensures that the past returns to repeat itself. It's a device that Coppola also used in the conversation. On a private boat, that was the only place they talked details. And that boat was bugproof. I happen to know that for a fact, Harry. 
They wouldn't even strike up a conversation if there was another boat even on the horizon. That didn't stop Harry, though, did it? No, he recorded everything. Nobody knows how you did it, though, Harry. It caused a hell of a scandal, too. Why? Why? No reason. Three people were murdered, that's all. And in the same year, Roman Polanski's Chinatown used the same trope. Why was, um... Why was it bad luck? I was trying to keep someone from being hurt. I ended up making sure that she was hurt. In the case of Blowout, here is how Jack explains to Sally what happened in his own past. Alright. I, um... I wired their best undercover cop, a guy by the name of Freddie Corso. And one of Freddie's cases was to uh, set up a corrupt police captain who was trying to shake down a mob guy. And my job was to rig a wire on him so I could record the conversation. This notion of the past repeating itself, and Jack's struggle to ensure that it doesn't, is brilliantly visualised about an hour into the film, when Jack returns to his studio to replay his recording of the accident-slash-assassination. De Palma and his cinematographer Vilmos Zygmunt place the camera in the centre of the room so that we watch Jack as he walks around. The camera pans with him to deliver a full 360 degree view. But Jack can't locate the recording and runs out. Now, even though Jack is no longer in the shot, the camera continues panning, showing us Jack's Nagra recording equipment, the stacks and stacks of reels on the shelves and the sound desks where he does all the editing and mixing. The panning shot continues, tracking the same details over and over, and the rotation gets faster and faster until it comes to resemble the spool of tape, replaying the same sound over and over. Zygmunt worked with De Palma on three other films, Obsession, The Bonfire the Vanities and The Black Dahlia, and here he is at the Toronto International Film Festival in 2014, explaining why he enjoyed their collaborations. Ryan is, 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 is also a genius in, in a sense, you know. He is really a, a, a visual filmmaker, and that's what I love about him, you know, that the important thing is about images. And he always likes to do some incredible, uh, complicated shots. I love, he loves complicated shots. The 360-degree panning shot brings into play one more influence on De Palma's film, Jean-Luc Godard. Godard conducted a similar move in Weekend, just one of three films he made in 1967. Early on in his career, De Palma had been highly influenced by Godard's political approach to cinema, in which he repeatedly deconstructed film grammar and technique in order to expose it as, in Godard's eyes, a tool of Western imperialism. Blowout isn't interested in decrying America as an evil empire, but De Palma certainly was focused on revealing the cynical way in which authorities exert their power through media manipulation, cinema being just one example. Which is very commendable. In this day and age, it is extremely important to differentiate truth from alternative facts and fake news. But here is one other thing to ponder. Perhaps De Palma could have gone one step further and explored how the misrepresentation of women reduced them to sexual objects and, in the case of Blowout, sound props. <laughs> 